the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. We have been seeing God's interactions with Balak, who was a king of the Moabites, and Balaam, who was a pagan soothsayer. God kept warning Balak that attempting to curse the nation of Israel would bring about the destruction of Moab. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. In chapter 22 through 24, we see Israel is encamped in the Jordan Valley, and Balak, the king of Moab, he summons Balaam, this soothsayer, this prophet, to curse Israel because Israel defeated the country that defeated Moab. And so he thought, we can't take these guys. And so he hires this guy to curse Israel. But what happens? The Lord tells Balaam, you don't say a word unless I tell you to. And so the Lord gives prophecies of blessing for Balaam to pronounce upon the people. Balak, eventually, after the fourth blessing comes, he sends Balaam away. He says, get out of here, man. I'm not paying you. You didn't render the services I paid for. Well, while all those antics are going on between Balaam and Balak, Israel's just chilling in the valley. They have no clue of the spiritual battle that's going on in the mountains all around them as Balaam's trying to curse them. They've settled down, and for all purposes, this day was just another day. And yet, it didn't turn out that way. Like all spiritual battles, the enemy may flee for a while, but he will return with a different tactic. And sadly, this tactic has some success. So chapter 25, verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bow down to their gods. So Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Israel, who for all purposes seem to be doing fairly well up lately, they begin to relax under God's blessing there in the Jordan Valley and they slip up. The phrase there, they abode in Shittim. Shittim is the region in the Jordan Valley where they encamped. It was where Balaam saw them under God's blessing. Remember he said he saw the tents and he saw God's favor upon them, God's blessing upon them. And so that's where they are right now. They have settled down in this area waiting for God to lift the ban on entering the promised land so they can go in and take the land that was promised to them. And while their eyes have been fastened on the prize pretty well recently, here they lose focus and they fall prey to something horrible. For it says, the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Whoredom, it can have two meanings. One can mean to prostitute oneself, so to be just sexually promiscuous. Or secondly, it can mean to be unfaithful. God would often use this word for idolatry because he looked at idolatry as Israel cheating on him with another God. In this case, both meanings are appropriate because their sinful sexual behavior led to idolatry. It says, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. Who are they? Well, it's these daughters of Moab, these young ladies from Moab. They came and entered into the Israelitish camp. They seduced the men. Now, after they 
built these relationships with Israelite men, they invited them to their pagan worship ceremonies. The word they're called means to invite as an offer of hospitality. You know, I like you, you like me, things are going well. Why don't you come to our side of town and we'll show you a good time. These sacrifices to their gods, these would be the communal feasts that began with offerings and rituals and then would culminate in sex parties. What does Israel do? Well, they accept the invite and they join right in. For it says the people did eat. This would be the cultic meal. So it'd be layered with religious rituals, something God forbade Israel from doing. They did eat and they bowed down to their gods. They prostrated themselves in worship to the gods of Moab. And so it says, Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. The phrase there to join oneself, it means to yoke in with. In a religious sense, it means to embrace someone else's worship. It's the same type of phrase that was used when, interestingly enough, a Moabitess, Ruth, she said to Naomi, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. She embraced the faith of Naomi and she began to follow the Lord. Well, this is the opposite direction. They began to follow the gods of the Moabites. They joined themselves to Baal Peor, which was the chief god of the Moabites. This is the first time that Israel begins to worship Baal. It will plague them all throughout their history. It will be something that will be a thorn in their side that all throughout their history in the promised land before Babylon comes, they struggle with. This behavior of worshiping another god is a violation of the first and the second commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, it says, You shall have no gods before me, and you shall make no graven image, and you shall not bow yourself down to it to worship it. So Israel has violated the first and the second commandments. But not only is it sinful, it's also a capital crime. Deuteronomy 13, I think Deuteronomy 16, there's another passage in Numbers which talks about how idolatry is a crime punishable by death under Israeli society. It's Deuteronomy 13 where it says, If you hear about somebody worshiping another god... And they come to you and they say, hey, come with me and worship this other God. Don't say to them, I'll go, but also don't say to them, well, that's something you want to do. I'm not participating. He says, no, bring him before the magistrates, bring him before the people, and then everyone will lay hands on him and stone him with stones. So it was a capital crime in Israel. If that wasn't bad enough, note where they do this. It says they joined themselves to Baal Peor. If we look at chapter 23, 27, and 28 of Numbers, it says this, And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray you, and I will bring you unto another place. Peradventure it will please God that you may curse them from there. And so Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor that looks towards Jeshimon. Israelites went to this pagan worship center, this temple to Baal, the very place that God had been fighting for them. This is the exact spot where God went to battle for Israel the final time, declaring their position of beautiful acceptance, wonderful blessing and victorious future before the king of Moab and his hired shaman. This would be like returning to the place where you got married with a mistress or paramour. But if you had one, it'd be like going to the place of your wedding. That's what they did here. The place where God went to bat for them and fought for them, declared his love for them and his blessing upon them. And they went and had, you know, an affair right in that very same spot, a horrible betrayal of the love that God had shown to them. And as such, it makes the Lord very angry. It says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The phrase there, it means his nose became really red. It's a very demonstrative word. The idea is he was not happy. This was the final straw for the generation that had rebelled time and time again. This was a full-scale rejection of God's truce, and therefore it incurred his great wrath. And so God gives instructions to Moses in verse 4. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, I want you to take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And so Moses said unto the judges of Israel, I want you to slay every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. The word there, heads, it refers to the leaders of this wicked activity. I want you to find out all the instigators, everybody who led the charge in this vile behavior. And I want you, the Lord says, to hang them up against the sun. Before the Lord just means out in the open where I can see. The word there to hang, it means to kill and then impale the corpse on a long, sharp piece of wood, a spike or a spear or something like that. And God says, don't just execute them. Do it in broad daylight. Do it against the sun. I want everyone to see the horribleness of what they've done. And that's the only way that my fierce anger will be turned away from you guys. We'll see later on that God, the moment they started to do this, he sent a plague amongst the people. And basically, that was the only way to stop it, was to deal with the offenders. Very similar to what God did with the golden calf. Now, the judges here that Moses tells that it's their responsibility to execute these men that had done this and instigated it, these were the righteous men that Moses had appointed to handle all of the lesser legal matters in Israel. And so each one of them would be responsible to carry out this death sentence for those guilty men who were underneath their area of responsibility. Guys, I know this sounds harsh, but sin is serious. It's very serious. Serious enough that the very same thing was done to our Savior when he took our place. Except he wasn't executed first and then placed on a gibbet. He was placed on one alive, bearing all the weight of judgment that man and God could bring to bear. Sin, if we ever wonder how serious it is, all we have to do is look at the cross. God says, I want you to deal with this seriously because I don't want to judge you, but I will if you don't deal with it. While this is all going on and Moses is giving the instructions, It says, and behold, which means pay attention. Something important is about to happen. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. While Moses is saying this and the leaders, the godly leaders are weeping and crying out to God for mercy, all of a sudden this dude waltzes in with his lady friend. This is a whole new level of wicked. Not only has he been doing this, but now he's going to bring it home. And yet, that's not the worst of it. He does it right in front of Moses. You might be thinking, wait a second, Will. Midianitish woman, I thought this was a Moabite issue. Yes, but this is the first indication, the first clue that something more sinister is going on than just some pretty Moabite girls attracting some handsome Israelite boys. Balaam, if you remember, was not just hired by the Moabites to curse Israel. He was hired by the Moabites and the Midianites to curse Israel. And this was plan B after Balaam's curses failed. Look at Numbers chapter 31 with me, verse 16. When God gives the command to execute the women as well who had instigated this when Israel attacks these people after this is all done, he says in verse 16, Behold, these caused the children of Israel, here it is, through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. This was at the council, the advice of Balaam. This was a plan put in place. This was not just something where boy meets girl and bad things happen. This was a sinister, cunning plan to get God to judge Israel since he couldn't curse Israel. Look at Revelation chapter 2. It says something very similar. Verse 14. Jesus, speaking to the church of Pergamos, He says that he has some problems with them. He says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Balaam, this guy, (laughs) what was it, Dante, who said the lowest level of hell was reserved for those who lead people astray, who cause people to sin? Balak had sent Balaam away without paying him. But at some point, Balaam turned around with a second proposal. He said, listen, Balak, I can't curse them, but here's how to get God 
to judge them. This plan of enticing Israel into idolatry through sexual sin came from him. And this time, he did get paid. Jude 11, it says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. Man, when all those gold and riches came his way, he was a happy man. He's like, I did it. I pulled it off. I did it. I got the money. This guy was the ultimate false prophet. And you know what? The teaching of Balaam, it has been copied by false prophets through time. Listen, any teaching that says sin is okay follows in his footsteps. Sin is never okay. Sexual sin is never okay. Idolatry is never okay. And may I suggest if you're refusing to give up the first sexual sin, it's very likely because the second idolatry already has a hold on your heart. You've already put something else in front of the Lord in your life. And so if you're struggling with sexual sin, you might need to go back and deal with your idolatry problem first. Balaam's full plan comes to fruition as this man waltzes into Moses' presence with his new lady friend because these two have something to say. Back in Numbers 25, the end of verse 6, it says this, He brought her unto his brethren in the sight of Moses. He's doing this on purpose. And in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Those people are gathered there to hear from Moses his instructions about how to fix this mess and to seek God for mercy. They're weeping. They're crying out to God to stop the plague. Moses, he's just instructed the judges to execute the leaders of this wickedness and this guy just coincidentally waltzes in? Not at all. These two people, this couple, were influential people making a statement. And what they're saying is, what we're doing is fine. Let us demonstrate right in front of God. There's nothing wrong with what we're doing. See, just before the tabernacle was a pavilion called the Tent of Meeting. And it's where people would gather before they came to bring their offering or to worship the Lord. And this couple decides to have sex right there to prove their point. How do I know? By what happens next. Look at verse 7. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through with one swipe, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. Phineas, remember he's Eliezer's son, so he's an assistant priest right now at this point. Part of his job is to serve the people of Israel, to teach them God's word, to lead them in the right way, and to help them with their offerings, to help them have a relationship with God. And as that's going on, as they're seeking God, praying for mercy, the phrase there, saw it, it means it saw something going on. He saw them copulating right there, and he decides to do something about it. He rose up from among all the people who are praying to God, seeking mercy, and he takes a javelin, which would be more like a spear or a lance, in his hand. And remember, this guy's not a warrior. He's a priest. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and he thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. Rabbis describe the language here as trying to be the least graphic as possible because what they were doing was despicable. They could have written it more explicit, but they were trying to not do that because it was horrific what was going on. Phineas executes them in the very act of sex. That's interesting because when they walked in, nobody else did anything. Even though Moses had instructed them, you need to execute these people because God's judgment is upon the nation because of their sin. And yet Phineas does act on God's instructions. And this obedience led to God stopping the plague. In verse 9 it says, and those that died in the plague were 24,000. Listen, I don't know how long the plague had been going on, but it doesn't seem to be that it had been going that long. How many more people would have died if he had hesitated? How many other bad things would have happened if he hadn't obeyed the Lord immediately and done what was needed to be done? Now, before the Lord deals with the situation, the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, I have a special blessing upon Phinehas. He says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. Why? Because he was zealous for my sake among them that I would not consume the children of Israel in my jealousy. 
Phineas had two things going for him. He had a beautiful heart. One was that he was zealous for God. He loved God. He was passionate for God. That's what that word zealous means. It means to burn with zeal for a cause or for a person. The phrase, therefore, my, he was zealous for my sake, it means he burned with zeal with ardent passion. He was passionate for God. Phineas's loyalty to God and love for God meant that obedience wasn't optional behavior. My very first pastor used to say, Christians should make quality decisions. And he would always say, a quality decision is one that you make that negates the need to make any further decisions. Your decision to follow Christ is a quality, should be a quality decision. That it negates the need to figure out what you're going to do when it comes to, am I going to obey God or not? Phineas's love for God meant that his obedience was never going to be optional. He was going to do what God said. I need to make it clear that God does not call us to execute this kind of justice. So don't get any ideas about that coworker you don't like or the neighbor that, you know, mows your yard wrongly or something like that. But even though God doesn't call us to execute this kind of justice, he does call us to this kind of commitment to obey what he has commanded us. And I would ask you tonight, do you have that kind of commitment to be obedient to the Lord? Have you made that quality decision in your life that negates the need to make any other decisions? Phineas had. Turn over to Psalm 106. Talks a little bit about Phineas here. It has something very interesting to say. Verses 28 through 31. It's a psalm of confession for all the rebellion Israel did against the Lord. And it makes reference to this situation. It says, They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor, and they ate the sacrifices of the dead. That's what the King James says, but literally it means the sacrifices of the lifeless. Listen, when you're pouring your life into an idol, whatever it may be, whether it's a little tiki god, or whether it's you know your job, or money, or lust, or whatever it might be, you're offering your life, your best years, to something that's dead. Something that's not even alive. Something that's not there for you, and something that can't help you. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. But then stood up Phineas, and he executed justice, and so the plague was stayed. But here's the interesting part. And that, his actions, was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. That's interesting. We read in our scripture reading about how James says that a man is not justified by faith alone, but by works as well. That sounds a little bit like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because Paul is very clear in all of his letters that a man is justified by faith alone, right? What is James talking about, and what is this talking about here? Well, Phineas wasn't saved by this deed, but it proved the reality of his faith. Turn back to James chapter 2, because I want to talk about this sometimes confusing passage. James says this, James 2 verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? In other words, if I say I believe, I trust the Lord, Jesus is my savior, I follow him, I'm a Christian, but like my life doesn't match that confession at all? Is that faith enough? The obvious answer to the question is no. Obviously there's something wrong and off with your faith. James, he starts off the conversation not by saying you're justified by your works too. That's not his point. His point is this, your faith, it has issues if it's not affecting the way you live. He goes on. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Hi, brother, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give him none of those things which are needful to the body, then what good does it do? What good does it do if you go, be warm, be filled, bro? I hope everything works out for you. He's like, it'd be easier to work out if you gave me some help. Most people in that situation would not feel very grateful because you said be warm to be filled. He's thinking, I don't have a place to rest my head tonight. She's thinking, I don't have any food to feed my kids. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. He's not saying that we are justified before God by deeds that we do. What he's saying is, is that our faith is lifeless if it doesn't produce a behavior change. If our behavior doesn't match our profession, there's an issue with our faith. It's lifeless. Yet a man say, you just got this wrong, James. You have faith and I have works. Or I have faith and you have works. 
And she goes, ah, oh, you're not playing that game with me. You show me your faith without your works, I will show you not my works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. See, what James is saying here, what Psalm 106 is saying, isn't saying that Phineas was justified by his works before God. He's saying that Phineas was justified by his works before men. That's the whole passage here. There's no mention of being justified before God at all. In fact, the only reference to being justified before God is in verse 23, where it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. We are justified before God by our faith. My godly behavior justifies me before men. How do I know someone's faith is real? I'm going to see a changed life. It's that simple. When I have someone in front of me and and they say, I don't know if I'm saved. And I say, well, has your life changed at all? If not, have you ever repented of your sins? I mean, maybe you came to church and you kind of were emotional and you, you said, okay, Jesus, I'll give you my life. But you never repented of your sins. You never really recognized your need for a savior. You just wanted help with your problems. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not salvation. Salvation is when I come to the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm messed up. I'm broken and I can't fix myself. I have sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be right with you. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, but I believe you sent Jesus to die for me. And he paid all the penalty for my sin on that cross. And I put all my hope in that. The Bible says when you do that, you're born again. Born again, the idea is you have a new life and your life changes. It takes on a different tone. We talk about here when he mentions Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Rahab. The whole idea isn't that they were justified by their works, but their works proved that their faith in God was legitimate. That their faith in God was genuine. This act of faith not only showed Phineas's dedication to the Lord, though, it also showed his dedication and his love for the people he served. For the Lord says here back in Numbers 25, verse 11, not only while he was zealous for my sake among them, but it was that I would not consume the children of Israel in my jealousy. Phineas did not want the people of God to be wiped out. He did not want them to vanish away. He loved them enough that he would do the hard thing. He would stand in the gap for them when no one else was. Do you and I love people enough to do what God says, even if we're all alone in it, knowing that it will cause him to show mercy even while they're disobeying him? You and I, we vastly underestimate the power and influence we can have on somebody's life just by living for the Lord, just by doing things the right way. There's been times when I've been like, Lord, this situation, there's no hope. I don't see how you're going to work in this. It's just bad. But I just keep trucking away. I keep walking with him and I keep ministering to him. I keep loving him. I keep serving him. And all of a sudden, it's like the light bulb goes on. And the light bulb goes on and they start asking questions. They start trying to come back and walk with the Lord. We can have great influence by standing in the gap for other people. Because of Phineas's actions, God spares the people, but he also gives Phineas a special blessing. Verse 12 and 13, he says, Wherefore, because he did this, say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it in his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and he made an atonement for the children of Israel. The role of high priest is going to come through Phineas's descendants from now on. That's the blessing God gives to him. He had lots of brothers. By this time now, you've got multiple cousins and everything who are priests now serving, and the Lord honors him for his obedience and says, the priestly line, the high priestly line is going to come through your descendants, Phineas, because he was zealous for his God, and he made atonement for the children of Israel. And isn't that the job of a priest? To make atonement? Phineas is a beautiful picture of our great high priest who made atonement for us by his godly life and his substitutionary death. Jesus is our great high priest who did the same exact thing by giving his own life. 
Now, if the chapter ended there, we'd be done, but it doesn't. Verse 14 peels back the drama to a deeper layer by explaining the identity of the man and the woman who were executed. Look at verse 14. It says, Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Selu, a prince of a chief house among the Simeonites. Here's where the drama unfolds in a deeper way. These were significant individuals. Zimri, his name means celebrated in song. His name has to do with remembrance through music, but instead he be remembered for the great shame he brought by leading the nation to the brink of destruction. What a sad thing. Don't let that happen to you. God has a name for you. He has a plan for you. Don't let that happen to you. But he isn't the only leader involved in this plot. This was an influential guy. He was a prince, but he isn't the only leader involved in this plot. See, while Israel employed male priests only, other nations often had women in that role because of the sexual parties in their ceremonies. They were very promiscuous, very racy. That's just what the priestesses did back then, guys. That's how it was. To be frank, it's not a whole lot different than our modern-day pornography industry, in my opinion. I think it's pretty much just the same thing under a different name. So the daughter, here it mentions in verse 15, in the name of the Midianite woman that was slain, was her name was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, and he was a head over a people and of a chief house. The daughter of a high-ranking Midianite would certainly be one of these priestesses. So these were two leaders who were making a statement. Thankfully, Phineas's statement, he made a greater one. And because of their involvement, though, God pronounces judgment on the Midianites, verse 16. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, I want you to vex the Midianites, and I want you to smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, their cunning, their tricks. God says, this was planned. This was something that was done by design. This wasn't just something that happened, boy meets girl. This was done done by design to trip up Israel. For they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you in the manner of Peor and in the matter of Cosby. So this is where it shows that she was kind of leading the charge in this. The daughter of the prince of Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. The Midianites, they were descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah, after Sarah died. Because of that, Israel wasn't allowed to attack them. They had, because they were kind of family, the Lord said, no, I've given them a special land. You're not going to attack them. You're not going to take their land. God rescinds that ban right now. He says, no mas, no mas, buddies. They're fair game now. I want you to take them out. The word they're vex, it means to treat them as an adversary. They are not family anymore. They are your enemy, and I want you to smite them. Now, we won't get to that right away because this brings us to the end of that first generation. Every one of the first generation by this point in time is dead experiencing God's judgment. We look at this and we say, well, man, that's kind of harsh. I mean, God's just, he's like, wipe them out. But while God's judgment seems harsh, please remember that he takes the time to name these two individuals that were judged. They weren't nobodies to God. They were people he created, he had a plan for, and that he loved. They were important to him, but he had to deal with them. And so for God to take such heavy action upon them and upon the Midianites as a whole, it shows us how serious sin is. Truthfully, the cross stands forever as proof of that, right? If you want to know how ugly sin is, watch the passion of the Christ. You'll see how ugly sin is, you know? Look up a crucifixion and see what it was like. Read the gospels, see what was said about what they did to Jesus. That's how serious, that's how ugly our sin is. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.